Welcome to The Legal Lunch, the legal and business podcast where we talk to the people behind the brand. We look at who they are, why they do what they do, and what makes them tick. I'm your host, Porik Grennan. Thanks for listening. Stuart Kilhooley, welcome to The Legal Lunch. Thanks, great to be here, Porik. Thanks a million. We tried to do this on several occasions, but... um, being stuck in the midst of a pandemic, it didn't happen. So great to finally sit down with you and have a chat about you, your life and your career. Yeah, it's great to be here. As you said, we did try to, to do a number of times. I, I think sickness and COVID and restrictions and everything have uh, have intervened, but, yeah. you know, worth well, here, waiting for, I hope. Well, here we are. Well, this goes out mostly, um, whether you're aware or not, to solicitors around the country, they listen to this. So it's to give your colleagues an insight into your life. And we like to keep it kind of personal. It's not uh, too formal. Try and keep sure. it relaxed and basically, you know, talk about where you've come from, what you're doing at the minute and where you're going. That's basically. So you hail from Malahide originally. I am, yeah, from Malahide. Uh, lived there till I was about 24 or so. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, I, live, I live in the south side now, but it's, uh, yeah, that's my, that's, that's where I was brought from, up. Big move from north to south. It certainly <laughs> is, yeah. And as a part of me probably would have always loved to have gone back to Malahide. I still have a huge love for that for that area. It's a fantastic town if you, if you know it. And uh yeah, I probably miss it to this day, but... Would you wander out to Port Marnock at all, to the beach? Oh, I have been to Port Marnock yeah. Beach many times. Yeah, yeah. Was your your mum and your dad was in law? Uh, yeah, my dad was my dad was a senior counsel, so uh, he was uh, he was he was probably probably the one who got me most uh, involved in in doing that. And I would, I'm you know, I think I probably I probably wouldn't have been a lawyer if it wasn't for him, I suppose. Right. So, is it something you always aspired to? Yeah, I think so. I think from probably from the age of around. 15 or so, I, I had this kind of, I always had this interest in writing and, you know, I probably was very much interested in journalism from, you know, maybe the time I got to secondary school. And then uh, I think maybe as around the time I got to, you know, what was then the intercert, uh, I probably was starting to think at that stage, well, maybe law might be a better career than journalism. And uh, eventually I went down that road, but um, I suppose I've always had this interest in writing ever since. And I kind of combined my my legal interest with, with writing over the years uh, as a result. But yeah, I suppose I think probably fair to say from the time I, d- I did my inter to the, to the time, that obviously, then I went to college, then that was something that I pretty much determined to do. It's funny because I had John Geary on the legal lunch. I know he's a friend of yours. Yeah, I listened he, to that actually. Yeah. He was into journalism as well. And yeah. And we, we ended up going down that. Did you, were you editor of the Parchment at one stage? I was, yeah, yeah. I was. I was editor of Parchment from 2002 to 2005. So, right. um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I took it, I suppose, from being a kind of a, a more of a kind of a pamphlet type, type thing to the to the magazine that we know today. Now, yeah. John has taken it to a different level altogether. But um, it was, uh, you know, I think myself and then Keith Walsh came in and he took it over for a while. And, and then John has taken over. John's done now for the last, I think, 12 or 13 years and does a superb job with it. But yeah, it was something I was always very interested in. And then I think once I stopped editing it, I started writing a bit more, you know. So that was, right. that gave me that... That interest in that. Very good. So you went basically from college directly to Black Hall, is that it? No, yes, pretty much. Yeah, I did a, a diploma in business studies actually after my law degree for one year and then I went to, to Black Hall. I started in this office where we are now uh, and uh, I've never left. Right, very good. Um, would you think that the, the diploma in business studies has stood to you just from running a business perspective? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it probably has. Uh, it pro- yeah, it has. I think it's given me some knowledge of all of that. It gave me uh, one thing I didn't really know from school. From school, actually, was accountancy, and uh, and that and you know numbers and 
how to understand accounts. So that actually, the one thing I probably gained from the business, home business studies was actually the understanding of, of the accounts. Yeah, because so that's I, useful as, as when you run your own firm, as you know. Yeah, because I, I, I do find that speaking to solicitors around the country, running the business is one thing. You know, they're experts in law, yeah. but, you know, having to actually get out there and promote their business, be it social media or website, a lot of people kind of fall down in those areas. Yeah. Is that something that you, you like doing yourself, or would you have somebody here that does, are you proactive in that regard? Yeah, we're not actually, and... Um, and the reason we're not, and we probably should be, to be honest, but the reason we're not is we've always been lucky in that we've always just tended to get referrals just as a matter of course. But, I mean, these things don't happen by accident either. You know, you, 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 you get referrals because you do a good job and because um, people think you're, you communicate well with them and you get good results. But we've always been lucky we've got that, so we've never actually had to do um, much in the way of advertising or, or, or anything like that. Now, you, you might argue that if we did, we might have more work. But um, to be honest, certainly up to now, luckily we've had enough to keep us going. And, uh, you know, who knows what the future will hold. But uh, I'm hoping we won't have to do any massive marketing. But I do think you're right. I think the solicitors in general aren't great at it. Certainly smaller firms aren't great at it. Larger firms have departments which are set up for these things. But smaller firms just tend to get the work done. And they find it hard enough just to get their work done and to, you know, um, to do all the regulatory stuff that's, you know, become such a big deal now. I think that they find that... Much, much harder to, you know, to find the time to do stuff like marketing. But you do find guys like Flora McCarthy down in, down in Cork who um, is very, uh, very focused on that and has given a lot of really good tips for people that, you know, I think smaller firms are finding that something that they need to do and that they will do much more in the future. Can I ask you, obviously, um, you went on to become president of the Law Society in 2016. That was obviously a, a great um, achievement personally mm. for you. You must have been... Yeah. Um, what was it like getting the call in relation to that? Well, I suppose you, you kind of knew that it was coming because the way things operate in the Law Society is um, it's what we call Buggins' turn. And um, it's uh, basically based on seniority. So you, you get re-elected to the, to the council, um, assuming you succeed in re-election uh, every two years, and assuming you keep getting re-elected, eventually you, you go up the, the greasy pole and uh, after a while it becomes apparent when your time is coming. So I suppose I knew it was coming. I knew, you know, from a good bit out what year it was going to be uh, and I was able to prepare for that in terms of business, etc. cetera. So, um, I, you know, it's interesting. Being Law Society president is great. It's a wonderful experience and I, would, I wouldn't change it for the world, but I wouldn't do it again. And um, I wouldn't do a second year. Uh, it's tough. It's hard going. It's particularly when you're trying to run your own practice at the same time, which I was. Um, it takes a lot of time out of you. It takes a lot of energy out of you, and you know you have to have uh, a great ability to, um, you know, to, to 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 talk to people, to get on with people, to listen to colleagues. It's 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 tiring. It's you know it, it does take a lot out of you, and I know by the end of it, I know most of my colleagues would say the same. They're exhausted. Yeah, and you're, 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 you're counting the days down, really, are you? Definitely. Yeah. Towards the end, I definitely found I was counting the days down. I, mean, so I, I, I As I said, I enjoyed it, but even before I took the job on, I was thinking to myself, it's, it's like one of those things, like a parachute jump, it's like one of those things that you like to have done but don't actually really want to do. Yeah. Um, now, at the, at the time, I enjoyed it, and I was glad I did it, and I enjoyed it while I was doing it, but I was definitely glad it was over. And tell me, in terms of your practice, like what, percentage of your time could you allocate to actual work yeah i'd say i probably did i'd say i probably did 50 50 overall you, did you did you notice the business suffer in any regard yeah i tell you what I, I did i think but I, but i tell you what it, i also taught me was i didn't need to be doing half the stuff i was doing right. um i learned exactly what i needed to do and what other people could do 
uh, because you know I, I'm not I was never a great delegator I, I you know I tend to think I need to do this or I need to do that and you know it then became apparent to me during that year that I just simply didn't need to be doing those things and I've actually never gone back to doing the stuff that I was doing beforehand you know more menial stuff that just didn't require my presence uh, so it taught me that um, but the business did suffer a bit but not irreparably I don't think no yeah, and then you've got the the accolade I suppose of having been president it kind of compensates maybe it does it doesn't didn't make that much difference business wise um in my business you know it's it's, it's um it's personal injuries business it's plaintiff uh, claim litigation and to be quite honest with you they couldn't care less if you're if you're president of the law society most of them don't even know what it is they just want to see their money coming through they just want to see you get their case on yeah. and get the case yeah. sorted so um they're really not that bothered about you know what the president of the law society is or what it does or so yeah, the odd person obviously would would have an interest, but I wouldn't have thought it got me any business. No, sure. And who took up the reins then from you? Uh, it was Michael Quinlan right. took over from me. All oh, right. So you were was that his second time? No, no, no it no. wasn't. Nobody's ever. You oh, can't. Oh, do you second can't do time. twice. Okay. No, but his mother actually famously uh, was uh, was there beforehand. So they're still the only um, uh, mother and son combination right. that have ever been presidents of the Law Society. She was right. president in nineteen eighty. Right, very good. Um, so that brings us on then, obviously, um, I wanted to talk about the, the you, you're obviously very involved in football. Mm. Um, now, did you play? I played very badly, yeah. I played for Malahide United for um, for years. Right. Um, I started off as a kid and I played then for, um, I played uh, till I was probably about 33 when my knee went, uh, but I played, you know, it was third team football, um, I wasn't any good. I loved it. Um, even then, though, I was, you know, I, I, I was player manager for years of, of the third team and secretary of Malahide United Football Club. Uh, I'm still a trustee there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was, it's like it's, it's been the sporting love of my life, obviously. Um, and uh, I still, still, uh, still obsessed with the game. And come here, where did the, the love affair with Liverpool come in? Yeah, I suppose that started um, probably around the early 80s. Um, and I, like lot, like lots of kids of my age, you know, I'm nearly fifty now, and um, you know the uh, you know you you find this huge number of of Liverpool fans around my age because obviously Liverpool were hugely successful back then. But but I had a friend um who uh, in school I mean I actually wasn't interested in football when I was you know maybe seven eight or nine um and you know my my pe- my parents weren't into it and. But anyway, this friend was obsessed with Liverpool. He was mad about playing football, and he got me into it. And um, you know, I again, I just I, I followed him, and um, and as time went on, I became bigger, bigger issue. And you know, I think there's there's a huge number of us out there. Um, but yeah, I've I've been lucky enough to be able to go and watch them around the world. Of um, up until, ironically and bizarrely, last year I've been to Anfield every season um, since 1998, at least once, and usually several times. But I was lucky enough to have gone to a number of Champions League finals. I went to the one in Istanbul, the famous three all, um, and uh, I was uh, I was at the one the following year uh, in Athens, and I was in the one in Madrid in two thousand and nineteen. So, um, you know, they were all fa- fantastic occasions and um, things that uh, you know uh, you'll never forget. I mean, I obviously never forget Istanbul. It's you know the greatest sporting event I've ever seen, and. Yeah. I was to be in that stadium and to witness the the comeback from three 0 down was uh, unforgettable. It was just an atmosphere, I'd say, beyond des- description. Maybe it was beyond description. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I've never cried at a game before, um, and that was definitely the one when, you know, because uh, it was at that time when Liverpool hadn't really done anything for years. Uh, the team itself was actually still quite poor that year. Um, Rafa Benitez had uh, taken over a team of you know misfits really, and. 
apart from a couple of players like you know Gerard and Carragher, um, who were top class, but others were you know fairly average players, and he managed to get them to beat a, a top class AC Milan team. I mean, if you ever look back on that team, that team was fantastic, you know, yeah. full of superstars. Yeah, and for Liverpool, you know, with a team with you know Milan Barros and Jimmy Traore uh, and a crock Terry Kuhl to go out and beat them, beat them yeah. yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, the comeback was incredible, and I, if I remember correctly, there was was it three all after about an hour. Came, it was exactly so, so was the, the, the comeback long, started in the 49th minute and they were uh, they were level by an hour yeah so um, was, so there was a half an hour to go and then there was maybe 50 minutes aside extra time there was yeah, yeah so, was. So, th- so there was an hour of football played before it went to penalty it yeah. was it was and it's funny uh, there was a famous sa- fa- uh, save by Dudek um, in extra time um, from Shevchenko which uh, it was just incredible and I think that was the moment I'd return to my friends saying, now oh, we have this. I remember you know? I remember that save. Yeah. yeah, it was a rocket and he reached out to the left. Yeah, yeah I remember he just pushed that. it around. It was a point blank and it was, once that happened, you kind of thought, oh, this, is, yeah. this is our day, you know? Yeah, yeah. You never know when it goes to penalties though. No, do, you don't. Do you? No, you don't. Absolutely not. No. So so obviously you're a football fan. Let's talk at the, 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 the PFAI. How, how did you become involved in that? Was there just one case or... Because obviously you represent a lot of footballers now, Yeah, I do. Yeah, so it's interesting how that happened. So uh, it happened through two, I suppose, uh, quirks of fate. The first one was um, a friend of mine um, was contacted, another solicitor was contacted by a guy called Barry Ryan, who uh, was a goalkeeper at Shamrock Rovers, who was the first person to be, um, to be, uh, to fail a doping test in Ireland, in League of Ireland football. Um, so Barry fa- failed the doping test and he went to this guy that he knew um, and Eamon Carney is his name, and he, uh, Eamon uh, knew me well from college and said, look, I can't do this, but you're into football, would you look after this fella? So I said, I will. And uh, we took the case, uh, and uh, Barry, we went to a, a tribunal against uh, the FAI. Uh, now, the FAI took this very, very seriously. Uh, they drafted, Paul Gallagher came in as their senior counsel, and now he's now the Attorney General, as you know, and uh, he prosecuted it to the, I can assure you, to the fullest um um, and uh, Barry actually ended up getting a 15-month ban to begin with, but uh, we appealed it, and it went down to, I think it was eight months in the end. But um, the, after that, um, the the then General Secretary of the PFAI, Fran Gavin, uh, who I happen to know as well from having played with him at Malahai, believe it or not, years ago, uh, and uh, Fran knew me through that, and we'd, we'd spoken a couple of times during the Barry Ryan case because... He was representing the PFAI. Uh, he said to me, look, would you like to meet for a bit of lunch? And we went down for lunch. I think it was just around Christmas time in 2003, it must have been. And um, he said, uh, look, we need a, a lawyer. Um, everyone everyone else is a lawyer, he says. He said, uh, he says, you can't, you can't be running a... Um, you can't be running a, a player's union without a lawyer. And he says, we don't really have anyone. And... He says, but the bad news is there's no money in this at all. He says, look, you'll only be doing it for the love of the game and maybe a odd ticket to a match. And um, I said, count me in. Um, this sounds good. So we did. And uh, we had a number of cases. Myself and Fran did. We acted for a guy called Alan Cawley, who does, does as well known. I think there's a lot of work with um, RTE uh, over his escape from UCD. Uh, they wouldn't let him go. And it's a couple of other players over the years that had contract issues. And then Fran left. Fran went to the FAI where he became the director of the National League. And he's replaced by a fellow called Stephen McGuinness, who is the, still the general secretary of the, of the uh, PFAI. And it has transformed the 
union, to be quite honest with you. Stephen is a tour de force. Um, he's uh, one of the most impressive characters you'll ever meet. He's a very good friend of mine now. And, um, you know, Stephen uh, has made players' rights his life. He has he has made uh, looking after them his 100% priority. And in it, with me, he has found a kindred spirit because I believe in fighting for people's rights. I believe in the underdog and I believe in uh, not accepting crap from anybody. So, um, you know, the FAI, as you probably know, and everyone now knows, was a place that was run with an iron fist by a dictator and um, anything he said went. And, uh, you know, he, he liked to bully players as well as everybody else. Uh, the result of that was that you, you had to stand up to him. You also had to stand up to the clubs and let them know that they couldn't get away with the stuff they were getting away with, which was, you know, deciding not to play players when, it, when they didn't want to or they couldn't, or sacking people when it suited them. So, we, we, you know, we took on a number of cases over the years. Um, uh, and, you know, I think the clubs have learned now that they have to follow the letter of the law. If they don't, we'll go after them. Uh, we have a couple of cases. I mean, some of them are amusing. Michael Keane, uh, who played with um, St. Pat's, and uh, he was, a, you know, a very well-paid player, incredible contract he was on uh, in 2007 at the very end of the Celtic Tiger. Um, but Michael, you know, was prone to putting on a bit of weight and uh, he wasn't the best trainer in the world. So anyway, they decided after signing him from Preston, and he was you know, a really good player, Michael, but you know, he just, it just wasn't entirely uh, focused on playing. Um, but anyway, they decided at St. Pass that his contract was very high and that they really weren't getting enough out of him. So they were going to sack him for being too fat. And um, we took that on. We took, uh, we, we got a guy called Noel McCaffrey, uh, the, the GP, to do some tests with him and to prove that he was fit enough. And we won. We won at a tribunal. Uh, the Actually, the chairman of the of St. Pass at the time was Richie Sadlier, who I ended up cross-examining at the at a tribunal there. And Richie, to this day, still remembers it uh, with no no great love. But, um, you know, it, it, after that, I think people realised that, you know, you can't just go around doing that. There's another fellow, Dave oh. Rogers, um, who played with Dundalk, uh, before Dundalk were really successful. And uh, Dave... Uh, scored a goal and uh, after score was it he who scored the goal I think it was he who scored the goal but anyway anyway, after a goal was scored uh, he decided he was going to celebrate by taking his shorts down now he was wearing stuff under his shorts so it wasn't quite as bad as it sounds but anyway he got sent off for that and um, he found out on the radio the next day that he'd been sacked for doing this so you know we obviously took that case on on the basis that you really can't be sacking people just like that without actually talking to the first I mean, they followed absolutely no fair procedures. And you know, I think, you know, we found that, again, you know, Dave Rogers obviously won that case. And um, we have we've actually never lost a breach of contract case because, you know, the clubs, unfortunately, over the years haven't, when they've let people go, they haven't done it very well. And, uh, you know, employment law is full of pitfalls for those who don't do things right. So, um, you know, it's it, it's been a, it's been an incredible journey. We've had some wonderful experiences Um acting for players who've been disciplined over the years, acting for the Igor de Butz, who was um, accused of match-fixing. We went all the way to the Court of Arbitration for Sport for that last year, and we won that, which was great. Um, or the year before it was at this stage now. Um, and I've acted for players who have been accused of racism, of uh, of, of um, gambling, or of you know, betting on matches they shouldn't have. Uh, and of course the, the many, many other doping cases uh, there's been a number of doping cases so it keeps me busy uh, as I said it doesn't make me any money but uh, money isn't everything and you know I've had some incredible experiences which I would never have had otherwise
Yeah, and I'm sure you get a spin off a of business anyway from maybe family members of the players and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, back to you. Yeah, you would get a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, again, you would. I mean, you mightn't get as, as much as you might think, but yeah. certainly, yes, it's, it's not about the money anyway. It's, yeah. I'm lucky enough to be able to, to make enough money elsewhere to to, 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 to be able to justify that. Well, would the players themselves have your number? What way does that work? Would they would they go through the club or no? They go to the to the PFAI. So Steve McGuinness and Ali Cahill, um, who run the um, the, the the PFAI, they will be the point. For everyone, so they would basically say they they would judge as to whether they need legal advice or not. I mean, by no means would every every problem come to me. They try and solve the problems themselves sure. first, and they usually do. Uh, but if it, if a matter is insolvable, then you know I usually get involved at that stage. Okay, let's talk about Chad Evans. Mm. He's the guy who was um, convicted of rape in twenty twelve, but subsequently acquitted. And you. Tell us about that because you you got some grief on social media for some comments you made. Yeah, I, I did. Um, it was it was, it was me being a busybody to be honest with you and getting involved in stuff I shouldn't have got involved in. It was 2015 was when it happened, um, or sorry, when I got involved. So what, in a nutshell, what occurred was uh, we'd had a player in the League of Ireland, the PFEI, who who been in a not dissimilar situation. I don't want to name him now, but he's somebody I think would be well enough known. Um, and I was like the, the the Evans case just caught my eye, and I read up about it, and I thought um, this is interesting. Why did this happen the way it did? And um, I, at the time, I wrote a blog for the PFI called Stewart's Inquiry, um, and uh, I decided I was going to write about this story. So the more I looked into it, the more it became apparent to me that in fact Chad Evans might actually not be guilty of this, even though I'd been convicted and spent three years in jail. Um, and the more I saw it, the more I thought, how do you even get convicted? So I started writing and my initial intention had been to write an article about how, um, I suppose he'd been cancelled before cancel culture was a thing, but he had been, he had been cancelled really because he had been convicted and there was a big issue with him returning to play after his, uh, after his conviction, Sheffield United wanted to re-sign him. And um, he, uh, you know, the, there was a huge issue with that. There was protests and basically they, they weren't allowed to because he'd been convicted. And I, my initial idea had been to write and say this was wrong. The people should be entitled to get on with their lives having, you know, served their time. Unfortunately for me, uh, I wrote in a different way. The more I wrote it, the more I, I decided that I should say that maybe he wasn't guilty. And also wrote some really stupid things about um, that culture. Um, now... In my defence, it was it was pre me too, um. But you know, looking back on it, I'm thinking, what the hell was I doing? Um, uh, I've since probably learned a lot about these things. I've read a lot about it. I'm reading a book at the moment, actually called Night Games by Anna Crean, which is a really good um expose around the kind of same sort of time, actually in Australian Australian football, and the stuff that you know, man used to get up to over there is is really quite eye opening, but. It was, you know, it's the the blog anyway was written. It went up on the PFI website, um, with their full knowledge, despite what they may have said afterwards. Um, but there was some kind of implications that I went up in the middle of the night and stuck it up there without anyone knowing. But that's not true. But anyway, I didn't even send it out on social media. Um, it was up on the website. I'd say about ten minutes, and my Twitter was bombarded with people. Um, and it just like as these things do, it went viral. It was it spiraled out of control. Um, the following day, uh, I had several media requests. I ended up doing BBC, 
the I did Drive Time with Mary Wilson and I was basically trying to defend myself but in reality all I was doing was digging a bigger hole and um, the moment I knew I needed to stop was when I got a phone call from Channel 4 News and saying John Snow would like to have you on now I knew he wasn't on to tell me I was right so um, I just said no do you know what I'm just not really going to do that and I turned my phone off at that stage and I realised then yeah, this is getting out of control here altogether so um it looked like all these things had died down after a while and, you know, probably just as well that it didn't occur now as it, it's like cancel culture wasn't really a thing then, but it certainly is now. And, you know, the reaction was totally over the top. But, you know, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't write it today. Um, I certainly shouldn't have written it the way I did. And in reality, I shouldn't have written it at all. It wasn't my business. I should have stayed out of it. And even though it turned out that I was right, that he was actually um, innocent and he was acquitted, uh, a year or two later, I don't think that really um, excuse getting involved in something that is not straightforward. It's not a straightforward issue, um, and it's far more nuanced probably than I than I realised at the time. And I said my eyes have been opened uh, over the last few years, and just the stuff, some of the stuff that's gone on. And um, you live and you learn. Yeah, sure. It must have been a pretty difficult time for you when. You know, you're getting abuse online like that from all angles. How long did that go on for? Even can you? Yeah, it went on for a few days. Right. Um, I, to be honest, I didn't take much notice of it. I didn't. I just blocked a few people and uh, just didn't read the rest of them. You know, right. you got a few people supporting me. And I, you know, it's funny. You remember the ones who who, who supported you. Um, and uh, you know, there was a couple of people now in uh, in England. I won't forget them. Uh, a couple of journalists who went completely over the top. A fellow called Paul Hayward in the in the independent um i think described me as dangerous uh now i i uh, i considered suing him but uh, i decided it just wasn't worth it um and you only make these things worse usually when you do things like that so sure. i didn't but like yeah look yeah i mean for a couple of weeks it was it was brutal enough but I brought it on myself. I can't. I know what to blame but myself, to be honest with you. And whatever happened to Ched? Did, did he sign with anyone? Did he play? Yeah, he's he back play? playing now. He's still playing. Still yeah, playing. he's playing. Yeah, he's, his career was never never recovered from it. Um, he's uh, you know he's playing. I think he's playing at League One level, as far as I'm aware at the moment. I haven't really followed his career that closely since. But he's back playing. Um, he, you know, he was he was in the Welsh team when the when he was convicted. I mean, look, ultimately. It's a miscarriage of justice. I mean, nobody wants to describe it as a miscarriage of justice, but it is. He was convicted of a crime that he wasn't guilty of, right. and he spent three years in jail for that. And uh, you know, it, you know, while he while what he did was pretty sordid, um, and you know, very ill-advised, it wasn't a crime, as it turns out. Right. Did he ever contact you? No, no, he no. didn't. No. No, he just, he, he didn't, I'm sure he had enough other people to be backing him, you know, and he, he got a lot of support in England after that, and there was a kind of a groundswell of support. A couple of journalists really got stuck in. David Walsh, Sunday Times, was a big supporter of his and wrote about him regularly, about how, you know, he had been, uh, he'd become the most toxic sportsman in the world. Right. And, um, well, see, we got a bit more support after that, but at the time, you know, wasn't many people saying anything about him, and I was... The unfortunate one who decided to stick his head above the parapet. Right. Lesson learned, says you. A lesson definitely learned. Okay. Can we move on then to more, yeah. se- I won't say more serious things, but yeah. um, you're very much involved in personal injury. That's yeah. mostly what you do in your in your day job. Talk to me about the new guidelines around um, personal injury awards. Yeah, they're very, um, as I said in media a number of times, they're savage. They really are very serious cuts. Um, they're probably 50% at, mo- at the at the 
at the lowest levels anyway, and they're pretty heavy at, at higher levels too. So it is going to make a pretty big difference to the sort of conversation that, that uh, people can expect to get. Um, how it's all going to pan out, I just don't know. Uh, they don't apply to current cases, uh, any cases in which proceedings are issued. Uh, they won't apply to whenever the cutoff date is, and we don't know what that date is yet, but I think it's likely to be early April. And um, it's uh, so we'll, you know, they won't apply to uh, any case in which an assessment is made either. But you know, within a year or two, they're going to apply to all cases. Now, of course, you know, the insurance industry, because they're never happy with anything, um, are, are saying it's still not enough. But you know, if you cut it down to nothing at all, they'd still say it wasn't enough. And that's the thing about the insurers, you know, they're not, um, you know, they're, they're not honest, they're never honest, they'll always find another reason to, to, to justify their heavy premiums. The, real, the reality is. Is that um, is that it's it's got nothing to do with damages. It never did and never has been. It's got to do with um, capital solvency requirements. Uh, that's why um, the insurance industry is uh, or premiums are so high, and that's why they can't get people at the market because capital insolvency requirements are too or capital solvency rather requirements are too high to attract certain um, insurers into the market. So once that situation improves once you know the global economy situation improves i think you'll see a lot more insurers and then you'll see the usual price war will occur um and you know it, it hasn't got much to do with the legal, the claims environment here the insurers will have you believe that but also they're backed by the alliance for insurance reform who themselves know uh you know they, they you know they've they're i think seen as a you know an honest broker in the sense that they don't have uh, don't have any skin in the game. They have a go at us. They have a go at the insurers. They have a go at claimants. They have a go at everybody um, because they're paying high premiums, and they undoubtedly are. But you know what I've consistently said over the years is: the solicitors don't set premiums. They don't. They're not the ones who are making the profits out of the high premiums. Uh, solicitors are doing work for the work that they're being asked to do. No more than that. Our costs aren't even set by ourselves. They're set by somebody else. Set by legal cost adjudicator, so it's it is, it's not the same to say it's playing on both your houses. It's not the same to say, um, solicitors are equally at fault as as, uh, as insurers because we're doing our job, and you know if there, if there was no accidents, there'd be no cases. Um, we are being paid in accordance with what the insure with what the legal cost adjudicators say we should be paid, but they are determining what the premiums is, and they are making monumental profits as a result of that. Have you seen the new guidelines? And I have. It, have you done a comparison? And compared, like, I have, yeah. Content? I mean, as I said, there, are, there is about a 50% difference. So they are, it's quite significant. Um, as I said, the higher you go up, the more serious the injury, the, the, the less there is a, of a difference. They've definitely taken the view that, uh, as the Court of Appeal has, that you know minor injuries should attract minor damages and more serious ones should attract more serious damages. And, and it's hard to argue with that. That makes sense. But um, the, the cuts they've made with that level of injury, though, I don't think it's right. I, I think that, you know, giving 500 to, to three grand for, you know, uh, a six-month injury, when that six months could have actually been quite severe, you might well have somebody who's in a lot of pain for, for you know, four or five months of that yeah. and then be okay. So I don't, I don't know if that's, if that's right. I think there need to be more leeway. But, you know, the judges do have a discretion to go beyond that if they feel the circumstances are warranted and as long as they can give reasons for it. So there is some discretion for, for the judges and I know that a lot of judges were unhappy with um, 
with the level of the guidelines, the, the vote in the Judicial Council was clear. Close, it was close, wasn't it? It was 83, 63. So you've got 63 judges who didn't like them. Yeah. Didn't like them. Yeah. Um, so um, how they react to it, um, I suppose they'll have to, they'll have to obviously um, apply them. They're no choice. Um, but hopefully they'll be prepared to, to make the, to, to make different awards in the appropriate cases. Okay. And the minister is saying that she hopes that the, these new guidelines will bring down the, the cost of insurance. Do you think that's just baloney? <laughs> I think it's I think it's very naive to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, of course she hopes it, but the reality is is that um is that the insurance industry have already said that they don't think it's gonna happen anytime soon. So they're not even they're not even pretending they're gonna do it. The only thing that'll that will change that change that is if the economics determine that they have to reduce them. In other words, if a price war comes out, if there's enough people in the market and if they decide they want to go after more premiums, then that's what they'll do. They'll they'll decrease prices and try and get more bodies in, um, in terms of their, you know the amount of premiums they can get. But um, I don't expect it to change anytime soon. Um, and in fact, the insurers have been given cover to some degree by by the Alliance for Insurance Reform, who have said fifty percent isn't enough. So all they have to do is say, well, fifty percent isn't enough. It should be eighty percent, and we can't do it until we get eighty percent. So, like, you know, the government in fairness have been very strong and they've said that, you know, that they expect them to drop and and they've said that they will hold them to account. But I don't know how that's going to be. I don't know how that's going to manifest itself. Um, the problem is I don't think there's any easy answer to making insurers reduce their premiums. There is, however, an easy answer to lowering damages. You just do it or you get the judges to do it. And, you know, these quick fixes... Um, they stay, look good on paper, but in reality, does anybody actually sit down and say, look at the evidence and say, hang on, does lowering damages actually lower premiums? Because there's no evidence of this. We, what we do know is in England, where damages have been 4.4 times lower for years, damage, our insurance premiums are higher than they are here. So if it's about damages, then why isn't our premiums much lower in England? And do you think the number of claims will drop because the, the awards are, are going to be... Yeah, I suppose they will. I certainly think that those smaller claims will drop because people will think that it's not worth their while. Um, I think they're going to struggle to find solicitors to take on cases at lower level because it won't pay. Is that the real reasoning behind this? Yes, it is. And in fact, if you look at, um, certainly that's what some people want anyway. I mean, ISME, who are, you know, a toxic bunch, but they are the ones who, um, who they've actually specifically said it out loud that they hope the low, these lower ones. I think it's will. under 15,000, is it? Hmm? It, it claims under 15,000. Well, they want, they've said that they want it to be like England where um, because damages are so low, people won't make claims. So th- they've, they've said it actually out loud that they don't, they want damages so low that people won't claim at all. Uh, that's, I'm sure that's what a lot of people are thinking. I'm sure that's what the insurers want. I'm sure it's what the Alliance Insurance Reform want. I'm not sure you could say the government necessarily want that. I don't think that's, I think I'd be unfair but I certainly do think that that's what um, business lobbies want, yeah. Okay, very good. We're going to finish up shortly. I have some quick-fire questions. Sure. But you mentioned Eamon Kearney. He's purely by coincidence the next guest ah, on the show, good. so I'll tell him he said hello. Yes. Um, if you could go back in time, who's the one person you'd like to meet? Uh, back in time? Yeah, I wouldn't have to go back in time. I'd still love to do it. I'd love to meet Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. Yeah. Big Beatles He's, fan? Yeah, I'm a huge Beatles fan. I'm a huge Macca fan. He's, he's my ultimate hero. Um, I'd love to meet him. I'd love to, have, if I could go back in time, I'd love to meet him in 1960s, 1970s. I, I've been fascinated with the 60s for, for all my life. And I love the 60s and all, all the music that goes with that. And um, 
of the Beatles. Um, and, you know, that wonderful period, I think, maybe in the 70s when, you know, the Beatles had broken up and they were, Macca was finding his own way. Um, sure. That'd be the time I'd love to meet him. But I'd still love to meet him now. He's a, he's a genius and he's sure. still going. He's still recording albums. Sure he is. If the world was ending tomorrow, what meal would you prepare for yourself this evening? Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. Um, I would probably have... Uh, Definitely a chicken wings. I'm a big chicken wings fan, a connoisseur. Um, I would say I'd probably then go with pickle Indian. Do you know uh, no. pickle the Indian? Oh, it's it's in um, it's in uh, Camden Street, but it's uh, oh yeah, amazing food there. And uh, dessert wise, I think we'd have to have um, yeah, uh, Bailey's cheesecake. Very good. Last question: What's next for Stuart Gilhooly? Oh God, um, more of the same. I think um, I'm just gonna uh, obviously. I have no choice but to keep working, <laughs> so I'm going to be keeping working, and uh, you know, hopefully there'll be enough business to keep things going, and uh, hopefully the the new guidelines won't take, make too much uh, downward uh, effect on our business. But only time will tell whether that's the case or not. Um, but uh, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. The the PFEI is something I'm very interested in. I'm you know I'm involved now in the FEI um, council, and uh, that's that's something that's keeping me busy as well. And uh, I, I'm. I'm a big cycling fan as well, so I cycle a lot now. And that's my replacement for football. I can't play football anymore, but I can cycle like a proper middle-aged man. Keep you fit. Yeah. Look, Stuart Kilhooley, appreciate it. Thanks a million for joining me on the, on the Legal Lunch. Thanks a million, Parry.